What's wrong, Brian? Chris, this is our 30th episode. I mean, digital noise is over the hill. Pretty soon we're going to start wearing our pants above our ears and grouching about the kids these days and losing touch with our younger audience members. Brian, that's utterly ridiculous. Because we have a natural staying power that keeps us fresh? No, because this isn't our 30th episode. Really? No, if you count the episodes in the previous version of the show, it's we're way closer to 100. <sighs> Beer. No, you know what? Just get me an insurer. Might as well lean into it. Files, a brand new episode of Digital Noise, is dropping from the cyber skies, and you might just find yourself stepping in a big puddle of awesome. How do you speak like that? I'll never understand. I went to broadcast school. I want to do a show about you where you just talk like that all the time, and everyone, <laughs> they keep having to bring you to doctors and stuff. What's wrong with him, doctor? I don't understand. The worst would be at movie theaters. They'd be like, could you please pass the popcorn? And they'd be like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> No, it's 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 a curse, is what it is. This is the Blu-ray DVD review podcast that you enjoy whatever the weather outside, because that is a place we don't dare tread. No, it's I hear there are sticky things outside and sharp things. And wind. Wind? What's that? Yeah, fuck wind. Hmm. I am your host, Brian Salisbury, a warrior of the media wasteland, and I am joined by Christopher Lawrence Cox, who once unsuccessfully tried to change his name to Lord Humongous. It's true. I did. In fact, it turned out there already was a Lord Humongous. So they just gave you Lord Hubris instead. Yes. <laughs> no. Lord Hubris. Lord, Lord just sort of gigantic. And when they gave him that nickname, he was gravely disappointed. <laughs> Chris, why do we do this? I'm not sure some days. <laughs> we just keep right on reviewing Blu-rays and DVDs. We do. Well, they just keep coming to the door, and I, the way I figure it, the way... Okay, I did the math on this, and apparently, if we don't do this, the Blu-rays and DVDs don't keep coming to the door. So Travesty. That's why. Okay. I've actually tried to quit before, and I couldn't do it. I was just like, I'm addicted, I'm addicted, I can't stop! You got I the little patch in the shape of the Blu-ray symbol? Yeah. Even my girlfriend, I talked to her at one point, I was like, I don't know if I can do this forever. I mean, it's a lot of work every week watching this many movies. And she's like, well, we'd keep getting the movies, right? I was like, well, no, not if I quit doing the show. And she goes going to keep fucking doing the show. Wow. <laughs> she kinda, end, end of debate right there. She kind of likes us having a big movie library, so. Well, there you go. Every every woman judges a man by the size of his movie library, apparently. I wish I had met woman like this before. What right? was I doing? I didn't know even know this was a subsection of woman out there. <laughs> Meanwhile, my wife's like, can you get rid of some of this shit? It's getting in the way. And I'm like, I... Apparently yes, yes, you dear. can give it to me because she'll be nothing but pleased. You know? Great, I'll great. Get some nookie that day. Good. I'm I'm really glad that I could be your Spanish fly. I'm so happy. <laughs> well, I want to remind you that digital noise, just like all of our content here in One of Us, is available on iTunes. If you just search One of Us in the podcast section, uh, you can also follow this show individually on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast at D I G I NoiseCast. And you can become a subscriber to the site. Now, this is really, really awesome, and we've actually had a few new subscribers over the last few days. I don't know what we did to please you, but we want to keep doing that because uh, that is how we keep the lights on here. You can give $1 to $25 every month, or you can just make a one-time donation, and that's what really allows us to keep doing this because as more and more of you are listening, we're so happy about that, but it does become more expensive to run the site. So uh, in an effort to prevent us moving into the poorhouse where – 
the TV doesn't have the best resolution. They don't even have a Blu-ray player in the poorhouse. It's fucked up. It's true. There's a lot of beer there, though. Yeah. Wait, no, no, not the bar, the poorhouse. The yeah. Anyway, I guess if you want to call that brand beer, <laughs> <laughs> wow, your beer snobbery is coming out in full today. If you want to call that a pilsner, I don't know. I'd be like, you know, the Austin homeless alcoholic. It's like, <laughs> do you have some? Do you have a, money for a beer? Here, you can have a beer. Lone Star? No thanks. <laughs> a forty? Yeah, please. I wouldn't even take a two of that. Don't, you don't have a stout or anything on you, do you? <laughs> Stouts don't tend to come in paper bags in forty ounces, but uh, no. someday, someday we'll work on that. I have a dream, Brian. I do too. Yeah, I, I have a dream that this joke stops. Um, <laughs> so the other way that you can support the site, obviously, is you can purchase one of our Watch a Movie with Us commentaries for a scant dollar ninety nine. I want to remind you, as you're listening to this, there's only a day or so left on our forum to vote for your three worst movies of 2013 and the the uh the three that get the highest choices we're going to record commentaries for two of which we're just giving away yep because we're idiots and we're just giving it away for free i don't know it wasn't my idea (laughs) (laughs) and then whatever the very top movie is we're going to sell that commentary for the staggeringly high price of a dollar 99 the more of those you buy the more we're going to make quite frankly i mean if that becomes a thing where you guys are going to it and it's actually providing more income for the site it's that much more likely we're going to make the time to to make more. So if you love them, then why not buy them seven or eight times? Totally. And this year is going to be big for the site. We've got a lot of new content in the works that is just about ready to roll. Uh, we're going to be making appearances places. Like this is this is a pretty big year for one of us. So we could certainly use uh, your sponsorship, and we very much appreciate that. But right now, it's time to reach out to the Inner Sphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call... The Letterbox. You've got mail. Yes. Thank you, Torgo. The Letterbox. And our first question today comes from John Oakland Spencer, who asks, well, first of all, thank you for having three names I can pronounce. I appreciate that. (laughs) What is your favorite movie that doesn't have a Blu-ray yet? He says his is The Black Hole. I didn't even realize that hadn't come out on Blu-ray yet. Yeah, it's it's kind of insane. That movie would look amazing in high def. And that's the thing. I have to, you know, I'm always surprised when I end up getting stuff where I'm like, this wasn't on Blu-ray yet? Like, I just assumed it was. It's been around long enough. Sure. Oh, there's a lot of stuff that's not even out on DVD yet. But that being said, I had to do a little bit of research to see. So what is it out there that's, like, just crazy to me that's not out on Blu-ray yet? And honestly, out of everything, the number one title, I was like, seriously? That's not on Blu-ray is, of course, The Iron Giant. Yeah, what is up with that? I have no idea. That's, like, an animation classic. It's well-regarded across the board. It did very well. Why would they not have put it on Blu-ray? All I can think is the rights must be tied up or something at this point that would be the only conceivable explanation but i mean i know a lot of people have actually been clamoring recently for criterion to try and make a bid for the iron giant they don't do a lot of animation but that would be a great choice yes it would i totally agree absolutely uh for me it and again this is a movie i've discovered just you know within the last couple years but it's one that i have revisited again and again and again and have fallen deeper and deeper in love with every time and that is the long goodbye by robert altman uh starring elliot gould as philip marlowe it's just such a great film noir and a movie that uh the big lebowski i think really owes a lot of its existence to and for whatever reason like there it's only available on dvd and the dvd is shitty well that's no good it is a really poor transfer like i don't i mean i you know props to mgm or i can't remember if it's mgm or fox for actually putting it out on dvd but 
there was no effort put into it whatsoever. So I'd really like to see a, a cleaned up, remastered version of The Long Goodbye on Yeah, Blu-ray. next to The Player, that's probably my favorite Robert Altman film. Sure. Uh, there's, you know, just thrown out there a couple other ones that, at least for me personally, Exorcist 3, which is one of the most underappreciated horror movies out there. Some real creepy shit in that movie. nothing like The Exorcist at all, but yeah. it is a fucking good thriller. Really good. Uh, True Lies. How is an Arnold Schwarzenegger classic? One of the really great ones. Not out on Blu-ray yet. Uh, Mulholland Drive, which to me is the best uh, uh, movie by David Lynch. Love the shit out of that movie. And wow, it's so visually rich with its color and everything. Mm-hmm. It'd be perfect for that. Undercover Brother. Oh, you yeah. you do have a soft spot for Undercover Brother. That's my absolute favorite of the uh, modern day sort of genre satire films. You know, all the stuff that started with Austin Powers and went on from there. Yeah. It's like, I think that's better than all of them. And then, of course, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, one of the best of the modern day written musicals out there. So much fun. Such a huge cult fan base. Kind of shocked they haven't put out like a big, like, you know super special edition with like filming live performances and stuff like that for bonus features. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, more than a, just one individual title, I've noticed that a lot of black exploitation is not on Blu-ray. I mean, you have shafts obviously, which is sort of the one that most people know. But other than that, you get shafted. You get shafted other yeah. than that. Absolutely. You don't even get shafts, big score or shaft in Africa. Nope, just shaft. And in fact, there are a few that are available through like arrow and some UK, uh, distribution houses, but if you don't have a region-free Blu-ray player, you can't watch things like, you know, Black Caesar, Hell Up in Harlem, Boss, Truck Turner. None of those films are available on Blu-ray, and it may just be that I'm sort of obsessed with, like, I fucking love black exploitation so much, but I, I feel like there's a large enough audience that it's just, it's flabbergasting to me that they, they haven't even tried to put any of the other stuff on Blu-ray. Yeah, that is pretty surprising. Especially with all the, like, you know, you have Shout Factory, you have uh, synapse. You it have like one of these guys would just grab on to yeah. all this stuff. And then there's the, even the smaller ones like Scorpion and Twilight Time. You have all of these like little, uh, you know, cult and, and exploitation specific distribution houses and none of them have picked it up. So I have to believe that's a rights thing as well, but I don't know. Yeah. Either that or it's just a lot of these companies are indeed dealing with not a gigantic budget True. and they can only they can only really pick up so much stuff at any one time. I mean, I've said before when Shout Factory was first start getting started releasing some of the martial arts classic stuff, like uh, um, the police story collection and stuff like that. I was like, okay, guys, now there's only about 400 more really classic, amazing uh, 80s and 90s martial arts titles that uh, you know have never even gotten an American DVD release, much yeah. less a Blu-ray one to focus on. But it seems like, I don't know, maybe those didn't sell for them. Not sure. Could be. Hard to say. Well, our second question comes from Jesse Shade, who asks, I mean, this is uh, obviously something we needed to talk about. He says, in memory of Philip Seymour Hoffman, what are your favorite performances of his? And man, that was just such a blow in so many ways to find out on Sunday that he had passed away. Like, I I was kind of in shock. I, you know, I scoured the internet looking for any evidence that it was a hoax. I yeah. was hoping. Wanting to find Hoping, that hoping, hoping. Yeah, to find please, out it was bullshit. Please be bullshit. But, but unfortunately, it was not. No, it was not. Very, very sad. Uh, apparently, the, it sounds like the last thing he was in will be the second part of the Hunger Games Mockingjay. Uh, so, I mean, hopefully they filmed enough that, you know, they're not going... Well, I guess he's going to have a small, smaller part in this. Than I, I hope they, to. you know, I hope they don't have to reduce his part. I also hope they don't try to do like 
the weird Livia Soprano thing from the third season yeah. of The Sopranos where they tried to just put her face on some other actress. That's just, yeah. that's game of death stuff. We don't need that well, shit. Well, it's tough when you've got something based on a pre-existing book. So, True. Um, but either way, just a huge blow. Such a fantastic actor. One, really one of the best people working. And there's so many things he's done to look back on. Did you realize his first performance was on Law and Order? Uh, I did not know that. 1991. Actually. He was in a single episode, as many actors, I'm sure. I'm sure if you went back to the 90s, start watching those episodes, you'd be like, oh my God, look, it's everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember reading an interview about how he was saying that he felt Scent of a Woman was his big break because at the time he got that role, he was working in a deli. And after that, he didn't have a non acting job again. So he feels like that is the. That was the real, you know, well, beginning of the genesis of his career. It was a hugely successful film, no yeah. question about it, which I still have not seen. That's on my list of movies. I, I you know what? I haven't either. Never got around to it. So I, I didn't even know. know he was in that until but I read that interview. There's a lot of stuff. I some of my favorite parts for him, him from him though, are smaller roles. Actually, sure. Like I think of uh, his role in Almost Famous as being one of my favorites, playing the legendary rock critic Lester Bangs. Mm-hmm. Even though, I mean, that's one of Cameron Crowe's, if not his best. Come on, it's his best movie. Cameron Crowe's best film, Almost Famous. And there's so many good performances. It's the only movie I've ever really loved Kate Hudson in, and she's magnetic in it. She's mm-hmm. just incredible. But he kind of steals the show every time he's on on screen, you know, as his cynical, acerbic, but lovable uh, music critic, as well as that uh, Boogie Nights. You know, that's the first – I think that's the first movie where I was like, who is that guy? Philip Seymour Hoffman. Okay. Right. Like, got to know his name because we had seen him in some other stuff. You started to recognize him, but it was never like, you know, you know that guy, that fat kind of schlubby looking guy. And the three names. People remember the three – like, I remember for a long time um, – I had friends that would confuse him with William H. Macy. He was like, no, no, other other three-name guy, other three-name yeah. guy. I mean, him as Scotty J in this is such a sad, yeah. memorable part, you yeah. know, that he really brought so much to. Yeah, he he, he added a kind of a, a texture to a lot of characters, even some characters that you were supposed to dislike, characters that you weren't supposed to feel anything for, you know, necessarily just based on, you know, morals and whatnot, but he would bring such a, a, a well-roundedness and, and such an extra layer to those characters that you couldn't help but at least understand where they were coming from. And one of the, you know, we have a, actually have a eulogy up on the site where a lot of our, our writers are, are writing paragraphs about their favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman performances. And one of the things I said in sort of the preamble to that was that I, it, it struck me, unfortunately, after he was gone, how important and prominent Philip Seymour Hoffman was to my own film education. I mean, the very first film I remember watching and noticing things like cinematography and the actor's process was uh, – I was 15 years old and watching The Talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, and then you jump forward ahead several years. The first movie I saw in 70mm at the Draft House. The first movie I saw in 70mm anywhere was The Master. And um, you know the first Coen Brothers movie I ever saw was Big Lebowski. And then I started – anticipating Coen Brothers movies, new you know, new ones coming out the same way I anticipated, or only as much as I anticipated Philip Seymour Hoffman's new movies. So they, those two guys, like the Coens and Philip Seymour Hoffman, I was like, anytime they had a new movie out, I had to go see it. And frankly, you know, you know, I've been working on a screenplay for the last couple of years where there is a character lovingly based on Dusty from Twister. Huh. So, I mean, like this guy, it, it didn't even occur to me how much he has been a force in, you know, personally, just in my own film education and that kind of as we were writing the piece it it struck me and it 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 kind of wounded me a little bit even more about you know his passing well i i love the fact that later on once he had the point where he was like you know i can do whatever i want and i don't want to just do you know 
the the big paycheck Hollywood stuff. Like, sure, you're going to take Mission Impossible three and be amazing in it and be a great bad guy. But you also take took some really chancy, possibly even career destroying type stuff, like in 1998 in Happiness, which is such a great but incredibly difficult to watch movie by Todd Salons, and his role in there is one of the harder ones to watch. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and he's so good at it. He's so dedicated to his craft. I think as well, uh, the, the movie, uh, Synecdoche, New York, which was one of those ones. It wasn't for everybody, but it was just, it, it was, it felt like, uh, uh, what's the best way to say it? Well, it was directed by Charlie Kaufman who, and written by Charlie Kaufman, who wrote like being John Malkovich and adaptation and eternal sunshine. And this whole thing was like, there's nobody watching anymore, so fuck it. Let's just go mad inside Charlie Kaufman's mind. And if you love that sort of thing, it was brilliant. Hoffman was the centerpiece of the whole thing. The perfect choice to play a role that was just this complex. I loved it when he did experimental stuff like that. And he's one of the few big-name actors who was willing to do this kind of stuff. I mean, you talk about when he would do sort of the blockbuster headlining movies, but... He would bring a gravitas to those films just by being in them. Yeah. Like, Mission Impossible 3 jumped way the hell up. Like, you have to remember, Mission Impossible 2 was terrible. And yeah. a lot of us were like, okay, well, I guess they've sort of run cold on the Mission Impossible it thing. Was awful. So when we heard there was going to be a third one, I think the first sort of, like, oh, it's J.J. Abrams. Okay, that's interesting. But when I heard it was going to be Philip Seymour Hoffman as the bad guy, that movie jumped way the hell up my list of must-sees for that year. And he goes back and forth. He always went back and forth the type of stuff. He would go really silly comedies, uh, like the, the classic to me, uh, The Boat That Rocked, uh, also known as Pirate Radio. Just being basically Lester Bangs again, just mm-hmm. like this totally fun-loving, alcoholic, drug-using, rock-and-roll junkie on this boat with a bunch of other like the same. But then we turn around and do a role like he was in The Master that was this like sort of hard-not-to-give-him-the-Oscar-by-default type performances. Yeah. Yeah. We're, it's, we are a lesser world for having lost him, and for those who are on this trip of like, well, fuck it, what did we need, another drug addict? You're not only an asshole, you're kind of a moron. You don't know anything about addiction at all if you're saying that. Yeah. You've obviously never had a loved one who's had to go through it, and you don't understand how complex and difficult it really is. Yeah. You also don't understand how much pressure there actually is with being, you know, basically constantly having people monitoring everything you do. Anyone ever makes fun of like a celebrity who's like a, you know, a rich and famous Hollywood type, oh, poor them. You're pretty shallow and haven't thought this through real carefully. Let's put you in a glass box for several years and see how you like it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. It, no, no, no. It's, it's a yeah. terrible situation. It's a terrible situation. Like, like what happened to him. He was clean for years and years and something broke. Who knows what it was? Something happened in his life that, that sent him spiraling back. And more often than not, people who die of overdoses, uh, a lot of the time do it just like that when they haven't been using for a long time. And, they break and go back and it's right then because they try and do drugs the way they used to with a built up tolerance mm-hmm. that it kills them. This is a tragedy any way you look at it. I agree. And for what it's worth, and I know it's not much, but I mean, we're, we're dedicating this episode to Philip Seymour Hoffman. And, you know, like I said, it's, it's not going to bring comfort to anyone, but it's, it's, it's a little something that we can do and we certainly want to do that. So a- absolutely. So moving on from there, thank you so much for your questions, guys. There is no need to stand on ceremony any longer. Help, I'm ceremony. Yeah, her shift is over, and uh, the strip club hates it when we explore our weird standing fetish. So You really must have run out of stripper nicknames. Yeah, your name is ceremony. (laughs) 
Let's dive into the reviews. And I want to remind you, anything we talk about, we're going to put a little image up uh, at the bottom of the post. You can click on that. It'll take you to Amazon. Even if you don't buy that particular item, just by getting to Amazon through our links, anything you buy, we actually get a cut of that purchase, and that really helps us, and we appreciate all you guys have been doing. In fact, we uh, had a meme that was sort of created by our friend Ryan Brace. It was the most interesting man in the world and said, I don't often shop at Amazon, but when I do, I use one of us links. And I thought that was really funny. Yeah, that made me laugh. (laughs) So please do that. Take a lesson from the most interesting man in the world. And by that, I mean Ryan Brace. And buy things on Amazon through our links. And we're going to start this week with Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2. This is actually a really, um, it's, it's, you know, there's no accident that this movie is, is just, you know, hitting Blu-ray about the same time as the Lego movie comes out because the first Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs was a, a triumph for Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who are also directing the Lego movie. Absolutely. Because one of the things that they do so well is take things that shouldn't be adapted, that should have no business being adapted and making great films out of them. It's almost like that's all they do. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> you know? it's like they have a think tank and they're just like, okay, Give us a new challenge. What's the wor- worst possible thing you could think to adapt into a movie? A children's building brick? Okay, let's do it, guys. You know, it was it's good because that the, they ended up getting a job doing this because their second choice was uh, opening a deli. And if you've ever had their PBJ and sardine sandwich, you'd know that it probably would not <laughs> have been as successful. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and the first Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs remains to this day one of my favorite animated films. Oh, I so love it. The hell out of that movie. Their I re- style is so manic and, yeah. and, and it seems chaotic, but everything's organized and they, in the midst of all this anarchy, they create characters that are super likable with mm-hmm. pay, you know, most cartoons are either pay attention to their dialogue and their funniness on that, or they pay attention to just being sort of an animated thrill ride. These guys do both. Yeah. And do it tremendously well. So I was obviously very excited to see the sequel, even though, I mean, it's, we have, uh, Cody Cameron and Chris Pern coming on here as the directors. So Lord Miller have departed because they were working on the Lego movie. Um, I, I will say that I think conceptually they did a good job of finding a way to bring the characters back and kind of get back into this like sentient food world. Um, I don't know. I think, I think overall not quite as strong though. No, definitely not. And I, I, I think that, uh, a lot of it is because they're relying too much on the same jokes from the first one. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, remember that joke? You laughed the first time. Here it is again. And the other thing is just in general, the dialogue's just not as clever. I mean, it's, it's, it's not them. Phil, uh, Phil and what's it, what's his name again? The other one? Phil and, um, Phil and Chris. Phil and Chris. Yeah, ri- you writing- forgot the name Chris. Sorry. I love that. It's not Phil and Chris writing it again. And uh, these guys just aren't as funny. And, you know? you know, and it's, it's, it's a difficult situation to be in because that's such tremendous shoes to fill. And it, it, you know, a few years ago, that would have been a weird thing to say, but I feel like with every new movie, Lord and Miller kind of established themselves as, as, you know, some of the smartest, funniest guys in Hollywood. And when you think about having to step in and, and do something as, as great as Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, like, I don't envy the task they had in front of them. No. And, you know, to their credit, I feel like there were points in this movie where I was laughing out loud. I was like, okay, this is, this is good. I just think the overall packaging, when you, when you look at everything from start to finish, isn't quite as effective, isn't nearly as effective, honestly, as it was in the first one. No, I mean, that's, once again, a very high bar. And I think that if the, we if this had been the first movie for something, I would have gone, oh, this is a cute movie. Definitely. Mm-hmm. We're totally worth seeing. It just feels like just such a letdown afterwards. And I think I give it a couple of years. I'll go back and watch this again and go, you know what? This really isn't that bad. But 
like my first reaction coming out was almost wanting to cry that it was just felt like someone had hollowed out the corpse and slid its skin on for me. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> I know. I was like, uh, it even <laughs> smells like death. Yeah. No, I, this is really, it's not bad. It's just a, at all. It's even good. It's just not great. And it should have, it should have been a lot closer to great than it is. I will say that the one thing I will always appreciate about the sequel that is a carryover from the original, and I think everyone will understand this, the puns. There are puns everywhere in these movies. Every three seconds. Every, my favorite being, oh my God, there's a leak in the boat. And they pan over and it's just a leak. Like a, a vegetable. See, that's the thing. <laughs> that, that was a, that was a funny one, but that was the thing with this one. I think is that they managed to make the puns more organic seeming in the first one, and these had more of that sort of when you're hanging out with somebody who puns all the time but has no idea how to slip them into conversation, and you're just like, "Why are you looking at me when you're saying this? <laughs> Come on, man! You're the only other person in the room." Uh, <laughs> but you know what I mean? With those people who's like, "Ha I, I like puns too," and just keeps going and going, and finally you're like, "All right, dude." Seriously, puns are okay, but you can't fire them out of a Gatlin gun. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, that's that's one of the curses of using puns a lot on podcasts and, and reviews and such is that people will try to have like, I guess, like try to engage in like pun offs with me. And I'm just like, yeah, but you got to you got to be a little bit more organic. You know, not that I'm the master of it or anything, but like. Come on, man. Like, a little more effort would be nice. Well, that's why I don't go to the local Henry, Henry, uh, oh, Henry pun off here. They have this big pun contest. Mm -hmm. Like, there'll be one or two people who go to that thing who are genuinely really good at it and yeah. really funny. But the rest of them are enough to make you want to set your brain on fire and leave. You're they're, just like, they're so, they're just that guy. You know, yeah. guy, how many times can we hear a cow pun for utterly ridiculous or something like that? You're like, okay, stop. Yeah. Stop now. It's, ve it's very underwhelming when they, when they do See, shit like that. See, now that's funny. Yeah. But, See, now that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> but that, yeah, you know, it's like, uh, and that, that's the thing. It's like w w one pun out, you know, unexpected coming in like you just did there. Well, I guess it wasn't unexpected, but you know what I mean. Pun expected. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, is, is great. But if it's just one on top of another, on top of another, on top of another, I lose interest. In, my eyes start to glaze over. I'm yeah. like, uh, okay. And this is us saying that. I hope yeah. you guys understand the gravity of what's happening right now. And, and this is what this movie felt like to me. It was like too much. The yeah. humor relied so much on that, which was so well done in the first one. And here it's just like, you're just saying puns to say puns. And well, I, I do like that to their credit. The one thing I did like is they started off sort of pointing out their own like, hey, that's a shrimp Hey, that's a watermelophant. But toward the end, you started seeing creatures and they weren't telling you what they were. Yeah. So part of the fun of the second half of this movie for me was like, okay, what did they think that one was called? And then, like, it would it would become a game in the house. Like, I bet it's this. And it's like, oh, it's got to be that. So I will say the one thing I was most worried about going terribly wrong with this here, which was uh, Officer Earl Devereaux, the, the the cop who jumps around everywhere, voiced by Mr. T, was not voiced by him this time around. Who knows why he didn't want to be involved. Uh, Terry Crews came on. And I love Terry Crews. Me too. But still, Mr. T, it's such a, you know, yeah. memorable. And I had nothing to be worried about. Terry Crews, at least voicing it was great, even though they underwrote his character like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I would also like to know what uh, happened at an Apple store to uh, to the writers here, because there are so many pot shots taken at Apple and Steve Jobs. I'm just like, they basically made the villain of the movie Steve Jobs true. after he was dead. Yeah, I don't know what happened there. It was but. just like, dude, did you just get really shitty service at the Genius Bar? Like, what's going on here? Either way, this is, it's not going to be, if you love the first one, you were so excited, it's not going to live up to your expectations, but... 
lower them and you might still have a good time. It's certainly packed with bonus features as cartoon movies often are, uh, including a series of mini movies related to the film, uh, including Attack of the 50-Foot Gummy Bear, (laughs) deleted scenes, production design stuff. Uh, a look at, uh, uh, all the various, you know, pun, punnables that are in this thing, or foodimals, I guess they called them. Uh, a look at the spe- the, the end credits were pretty cool with puppets, mm-hmm. music videos, lots and, I mean, literally the list just keeps going on. There's always tons of stuff on these things. So they certainly make it worth your money, and it is a, much like the first one, a very pretty looking film. It is like, indeed. Very vibrant colors and moves really fast. If you're getting this for kids, they're going to be entertained. Uh, but, for, for your adults, eh, it's okay. Yeah, that's exactly how I'd put it. It's just okay. But why don't we move on from there and talk about, oh, God, is it Treme, the complete series? Treme. Is that how you pronounce yeah, it? not Treme. Not Treme, not uh, Trem? No. Okay. <laughs> Treme. It is the Trem a la Trem of ah, television. Nice. No, it's, it's, uh, this, of course, is the HBO uh a television series that was made. A lot of people still don't realize this. This was made by the same folks, uh, uh, David Simon and Eric Overmeyer, who created The Wire. And much like The Wire, which made Baltimore itself kind of a, like the primary character of the show. Sure. Where it's, that show just lives and breathes and sweats and stinks Baltimore. Mm-hmm. This is doing that with New Orleans. And this is takes place, what, like a, maybe about a year post-Katrina? And it's this whole cast of various people who live there, some of which are from there, some of which had moved there, some of which move away from there uh, as the show goes on for its four seasons. And just dealing with the day-to-day crises that come with living in the city that's been destroyed and refuses to die is going to, is going to rebuild, is going to live again no matter what. And the appeal here is not what you normally expect from television shows. It's not about long character arcs and building suspense and things like that. It's, it's hard to explain. Really. It's more just about that feeling of like a new life beginning. Mm-hmm. And it manages to achieve this a lot, despite the fact, like I said, it's not what you would call plot heavy. Most of the time it manages to achieve this by having, you know, every time things start to get down, they throw in an amazing musical sequence. I mean, this thing is just, this show is so packed with some of the greatest New Orleans musicians, you know, that have ever, that are alive currently, because obviously you can't go back and film the ones that are dead. Um, not easily. Not yet. I'm sure we're working on it. But just the constant, really great music. In fact, they sold and, and made bestsellers to uh, double album soundtracks that came from the show. Now, this set, this all four seasons set, the fourth season just came out as well separately, which is only five episodes. They give it a shortened, shortened last season. Hmm. But it's, you know, it's one of those. Everybody comes to a more or less satisfying conclusion. Uh, but, you know, life goes on. But it's not a hugely dramatic thing as you would do with a lot of other shows. The real bonus here to getting this big set is that it comes with one bonus disc with basically a a whole collection of – a giant collection of filmed musical scenes for the show that were never used, huh. which is pretty cool. Like, yeah. It, yeah, it's 71 minutes of musical performances from a whole variety of people we've seen before, some we haven't, uh, doing songs with and without characters from the show. 
So, I mean, that was always the biggest appeal of the show for me anyway, how good that stuff was. But having that whole extra disc kind of makes it worth it as well. Uh, seasons one through four come with on Blu-ray with the normal extras they did before. Four only has audio commentaries on it for a few episodes. But, um, the, you know, with all the ex- extra stuff that comes with the other seasons, hmm. you know, it all, all together. This is a – this is the picture – of New Orleans, of modern New Orleans. If you wanted to, like, if you ever lived there, if you ever really wanted to go there or just was curious, this is, like, the greatest portrait of that city I can imagine. And I've had this backed up by quite a few people who are from there who are like, I love this show because it is just like being back home again. Sorry, I was uh, thinking about red beans and rice <laughs> yeah. and how much I would love some right now. Yeah, you've lost a lot of weight recently, so... Well, I'm, I'm trying. The red beans and rice would not help the situation, but the no. the thing I can't stop thinking about right now, and it's, you know, it's it's one of those things that there was such a, like, I actually went to New Orleans probably, I don't even know if it was an entire year after Katrina, and it was just bizarre to drive through what was still largely a wasteland. Like, there were... I remember distinctly driving in over, you know, one of the bridges. There was a hotel that was sort of off to the right, and half of the building was just gone. Like, it was it was like it was sheared in half. I had never seen anything like it like that that wasn't in, like, a Roland Emmerich movie. It was, yeah, bizarre to see that kind of destruction in just a, a regular American city. Yeah. Yep. Man, I wonder if the band Katrina and the Waves feels a little weird about what happened. Because they caused it. Yeah, right? Um, nobody obviously they are fortune tellers and witches and should be burned. Nobody was walking on sunshine <laughs> that day, you bastards. No. Uh, well, that is Treme. <laughs> well worth it, for the record. All four seasons in one convenient little box set. Definitely, definitely uh, worth your time. Would you say that is your pick of the week? You know, I was just looking. This is kind of a, a mixed bag episode. I would call episode. that my pick of the week, yes. Okay, good. I'm glad you said that because I don't think I have a pick of the week well, this week. Well, there you go. <laughs> the complete series. Anything that I would put that badge on, I would I would feel guilty about. So, Tremay it is. Yeah, it was weird. We had, last week, we had so many great titles. Yeah. It was like yeah, almost everything we loved. And this week, it's like, uh... <laughs> It's not so much everything's terrible. Nothing's really terrible. Well, I'm sure some things are, but nothing except for that is really what I would call out-and-out fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chris, I have a question for you. Who is Harry Kellerman, and why is he saying those terrible things about me? Well, despite the cover, he's not Dustin Hoffman. Okay. Who's on the cover of this 1971 film that's been released on DVD. Uh, Like, you get a lot of these, like, these studios are just sliding out their, their... leftover titles basically like mm-hmm. oh we never did release this on dvd so fuck it let's put it out there for cheap and we'll see who who picks it up um and th- there's a reason this one took so long to because its out. title is ridiculous it's got one of the longest titles next to uh the, the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies or dr strange love or how i learned to stop worrying and learned well, to, how i stopped worrying and learned to, anyway you know what i mean yeah. that one but long titled films are a little awkward. This one it was awkward for an entirely another series of uh, reasons. It was directed by Ulu Grossbard, whose name was unfortunate, and <laughs> who was mainly a theatrical director. Uh, and what he brought to this was a very odd, very 60s slash 70s uh, hippie fest of 
psychedelia that doesn't really work at all. Dustin Hoffman plays Georgie Soloway, who is a el- – not elderly. He's like in his 50s at this point, which keep in mind means old age, bad old age makeup, who's a rock music composer who's incredibly famous. He's just been on the cover of like – I think it's Newsweek or Time or something like that in here. Not Rolling Stone? No, no. He's, he's like, like very famous and very rich. He lives on top of like a, a tower in New York City in this huge penthouse. Uh, it seems like he has everything, but he doesn't, except he doesn't have friends. Uh, he can't, women are rejecting him because that he used to regularly hook up with, uh, because this someone named Harry Kellerman has been calling them and telling them you know, these horrible shit about him, like saying, oh, he, I talked to him, you know, and he said he thought you were just a whore and he never really liked you at all and all you're good for is, is screwing, stuff like that. It's like, whoa. So he's what really pissed. And this movie, as he's just basically dealing with a finding out how many people in his life have really been contacted by this guy, is flashbacks throughout his life as we see what happened to this guy, how he got to be this crazy. I mean, at this point, I think they said he's going like nine days without sleep or something. Uh, and That'll he's do it. hallucinating like crazy. And, you know, I mean, there's lots of, you're never really sure what's real and what's not. Like he keeps killing himself and then he hasn't killed himself. Like the opening scene is him jumping off the tower that he lives in. And like during all the credits is him falling happily. And then he lands on his psychiatrist's couch. And he lands on Don Draper? Played by, no, played by Jack Warden, who plays his German psychiatrist, who, uh, who as well, who plays like, in his hallucinations, like he'll be a psychiatrist and then he's a cab driver and then he's an airplane pilot. And you're never really sure what's going on to the point that you just kind of lose interest after a while. Right. I mean, and it was panned widely at the time when it came out, because quite frankly, people couldn't tell what the fuck was going on with this movie. <laughs> I'm watching it now. I'm like, I get the general idea, but there's nothing to really like about this guy. He really is a self-involved schmuck. I mean, it's not like they're, letting us hear many of his songs so we can say, wow, he really is talented. And let's face it, Dustin Hoffman, when they do give him a chance to like get on stage and perform with someone, you're like, yeah, you look like someone holding handed a dog a telephone. You really, this is not It's like, forte. dude, we saw Ishtar. Just don't, Rock, don't do it. You may be one of the great actors of your time, but rock star was never something that you were going to be cut out for. <laughs> I don't know. This is one of those ones I got to say, despite the music that's in it, it's by Shel Silverstein, despite a, a kind of a cute appearance by Dom DeLuise, uh, Barbara Harris is in it. It's it's not even just okay. It's kind of weak, and it's one of those curiosity films in mm-hmm. time. Like, wow, that was a really weird film. How did that get released by a major studio? <laughs> I will say it's funny. Some of the complaints that you were having with this film sounded like my complaints with uh, Inside Lewin Davis. <laughs> yeah, well, I couldn't help but think a little bit about Inside Lewin Davis at points. But trust me, if you loved Inside Lewin Davis, that does not mean you're going to like this. <laughs> Pretty much nobody liked this film when it came out, and I suspect most people wouldn't now. Like I said, it's mainly that curiosity piece for people who are like, I love Dustin Hoffman. Oh, I never saw this one. Yeah, if you're if you're a complete completionist who has to see everything Dustin Hoffman ever did, then sure, pick this up. Why or not? Or if you're one of those people who's like, I love the history of psychedelic films. This is definitely one of those ones that you would want to that you would put in to fill out your collection. But overall, it's it's a pretty minor keynote in cinematic. History. I'm a big Ulu Grossbard fan, so I want to see all of that person's. I don't even know if it's a man or a woman, <laughs> frankly. Ulu Ulu, Ulu. Ulu Grossbard. Ugh. 
Yeah, that's a who. The, I mean, it's bad enough you know that your kid's name, last name is going to be. Oh no, Ulu is even his nickname. His oh. real first name is Israel. Israel grows bard. I can see why that would be confusing. You'd want to change it, but you'd think you'd change it to Steve or Ralph or Rafe. Ulu grows bard sounds <laughs> like the thing you say when people first start becoming concerned that you're having a stroke. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, well, you know how you know when you're having a stroke. How's that? You say ghost tits. Ghost tits. <laughs> That's Ghost the first it. sign. Ghost it. Actually, we should have some sort of magical prize for people who, like, catch the the random ghost tits announcements on the site. Yeah, from time to time. that would be fun. Something special. <laughs> Keep track of the ghost tits is all I'm saying. So that is who is Harry Kellerman, and that is why why is, he is saying – I don't – Who the hell cares who Harry Kellerman is? That's way too long a title. I'm not going to say it again. Nope, don't. Moving on from there, we're going to talk about The Fifth Estate. Now, I was concerned going into this film because I haven't seen anything about the first four. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, The Fifth Estate is the, the big screen version of the story of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. Yeah, I got to see the, the, uh, that documentary, uh, WikiLeaks, we, we, uh, was it We Steal Secrets or something like that? And I really liked it because I didn't know that much of the details. Of Neither did I, happened. honestly. I thought that was kind of fascinating. I did not see this, but I'll tell you, it was one of those days that, uh, back with Spill where we had to split up and two of us saw one thing. Uh, I saw, I don't remember, some action movie, I think, with, with, uh, somebody else. And then Martin and Corey went to go see this and they both came out going, Oh God, that was the most boring fucking thing I've ever seen. It is really staggering to me that a movie that is about the quest for truth and getting secrets out there and people being assassinated and all of this cover-up and conspiracy it's based on a real story could be this dull honestly uh. and they they try really hard and they know like you can tell just from the the narrative decisions that are made in this film they're very aware that their subject matter just on paper is very dull because they add things like weird dream sequences and you know like putting things up on the screen to try and make you understand the tech the technology side of things the logistical side so of things scenes trying to be exciting with people typing into a computer before you're like okay this is not working yeah and it's it's you know what Except i feel the like movie hackers maybe the movie hackers which <laughs> yeah their depiction of what the internet looks like is i wish it really looked like gloriously it. inaccurate and and awesome at the same time <laughs> uh but yeah the the thing about this movie is i feel like what they were going for was sort of a a, a, a saber rattling like journalism for truth and almost like kind of in the same way that all the president's men is a film about journalism and its importance in society and about how we should always be uh striving to to get the truth out there no matter what but i mean i don't know i i feel like there were a lot of important things that came out of wikileaks and i feel like some of the things that they were doing uh is really admirable but overall i and i and i have to applaud the movie for this overall there were things that they were doing that i was just like this just seems self-aggrandizing more than any sort of uh, reflection upon or you know intention to do the greater good. And some of the things like when they released, you know, these these documents that were that had like the names of agents overseas, and it's like, guys, you know, you're going to get people killed. And of course, Julian Assange has sort of become this person who has a vehement denial for everything. And in the beginning, I understand it because there were a lot of people trying to to smear him and get him to stop, but like. When you say things like the government can't prove that our documents led to any agents being killed, it's like, yeah, because that would then acknowledge that there were agents in those places. Like, you yeah. can't fucking do that. He went into this with the best of intentions, which was to say, like, the truth should be free. Generally speaking, like most general statements like that that seem idealistic, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, I can get behind that. But the more you think about the reality of it, the more it's like, okay – 
within reason yeah. that has to be true. There has to be points that you go, this is going to make things more dangerous and not, you know, not better by releasing this information. And that's where he ultimately got into trouble was because he had, he was sticking so bad by that, that party line, the truth should be free, you know, uh, that when it came down to him having to face the reality of it, he just, you know, he was just stuck himself in the ground and said, no, I refuse to budge on this, on the statement when everyone around him was abandoning him on it saying, no, dude, they have a point. There's that, you know, I agree that maybe like, you know, even the American government may have started with the idea that may have, you know, that, oh yeah, you know, freedom of information, but slowly there was a slippery slope that led to where we are now, which is not good. There's, there's gotta be an in-between and he was incapable of seeing it. Yeah. I still wonder, did this get into the sexual harassment charges? It, it, it touches on it only briefly at the end in sort of like postscript titles on the screen. I still what, wonder about how believable that was. Well, it's is. weird that like you had these women accusing him of sexual abuse and at first he was like, I don't even know those women. And that turned into, well, I know them, but it was consensual. And that was the part where I really started to be like, he should, if he had, if that was the case, you should have said that in the first place. Yeah, like, I, I can completely get behind. I know there's a lot of twisted fucking behind-the-scenes stuff that any government can pull off to, to smear somebody to completely bend the That's truth. That's what made me suspicious, but the way he behaved about it was yeah. not exactly on the up and up. And one thing I have to say to the movie's credit is it started off in a way that I was really afraid that they were just going to heroicize him throughout the whole movie, make him sort of this digital Robin Hood figure. Uh, but they actually do, this is a very balanced movie because it does sort of get into his neurosis and his sort of ego issues and, and what, what drove a wedge between him and his partner played in this movie by Daniel Brühl, who I actually think is the stronger of the two performances in the film, which when Julian Assange is played by Benedict Cumberbatch, you wouldn't think he would be outshined by Daniel Brühl, who is a, a, a great actor himself, but. Didn't we just see him in Rush? Yes, we yes, did. Yes, we did. But the thing is, I think it speaks to, uh, poor directing, honestly. I feel like, I feel like Benedict Cumberbatch was kind of stifled by having to play this this real life person and and sort of match and and imitate his his mannerisms and his Australian accent is not very good. Mm. And I was I was blown. I was like, really, Benedict Cumberbatch can't Expected do it. Better. Now go back to doing Sherlock and more of it yeah. all the time. And Only Sherlock for Benedict Cumberbatch from now on. And I think the most interesting part of the story is where you get to the end and you realize the guy's living. In the Ecuadorian consulate in England, and if he ever comes out of it, he's basically on house arrest for the rest of his life. Yeah, pretty much. In another country's consulate. Yeah. Because if he ever comes out, they're going to arrest him. And again, like... He had to know going into this from the beginning that this day would come where he would be that trapped at some point, or he would, in fact, go to jail. Because one way or the other, countries don't like you leaking their vital information out to the public. Yeah. You know, and they don't tend to deal with you in a sort of, here's a bullet to the face when it's that public. No, they make you paint you as a bad guy. Yeah. Or they at the very least, you. you might already be a bad guy and they just let it be widely known in a very sort of uh, appropriately ironic turnaround that you are, in fact, kind of a douche. And I do, I actually do agree with a lot of the, the principles that WikiLeaks is purporting to you know, it's a champion in the idea of it's about truth and, and journalism should not be, you know, bent at the whims of corporations and governments. And I totally agree with that, but I do, I, I, I like the fact that the fifth estate also delves into, you know, some of the things that WikiLeaks did that were ir just wantonly irresponsible and sort of the, you know, the, the ways that they paid for that. Um, but overall, yeah, the, I mean, the biggest mark against the movie is that it is just spectacularly dull and it goes on and on and on it's and really on long apparently yeah it's you know it's just there's just not much there that you're going to latch onto unless 
you feel strongly about WikiLeaks one way or the other. And by that, I mean, if you were following the case the whole time and you've been clamoring for, you know, like a big screen version of that story because you, you see the inherently cinematic qualities of it, then yeah, you might find something to latch onto here. But if you're coming into this cold, as I admit that I was, I watch the documentary, watch the documentary. (laughs) Yeah. I don't like, I, I would say watch the documentary about WikiLeaks, watch the documentary about the hacktivists, and just like get your information from that because the the true irony of all this is that we don't know how much of what happens in the Fifth Estate movie about WikiLeaks is true. So despite the fact that there's a movie about an agency whose whole you know the thing they beat the drum for the entire time was truth and no spin and you know not filtered by any uh, outside source, it's like yeah, but I don't even know how much of your movie is true about that. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a fictional, based or, I mean, it's story. it's based on a true story, but it's a narrative. So you could have changed any number of things. Yeah. Once again, watch the documentary. Just watch the documentary. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that was the Fifth Estate, and from there, we're going to talk about number one, the movie, oh. or just one, oh. the movie. Singular sensation. <laughs> Every time you watch this film. One, the movie is one of those movies that would have been better suited as a bonus feature to, say, Rush. That's what it seemed like. And But it would have been one of those bonus features you go, wow, this is so good. You have to buy this Blu-ray if for the bonus feature, if nothing else. Because this was actually – I believe this was even put out specifically – uh, for South by Southwest at the year, uh, last year when they, you know, had just built the Formula One track here mm-hmm. as sort of a marketing, like, look, here's the history of Formula One. And I admit, outside of the movie Senna, which is fucking fantastic. Indeed. And, and now the movie Rush, which is also fantastic. I didn't really know anything about Formula One racing. The only thing I knew about it before that was the name Mario Andretti. And I had no idea what that meant. I knew no. that that was a guy that had something to do with Formula One. You're hurting my, my soul. Like, the little kid in me that grew up in Indianapolis is just taking a beating. Right <laughs> Sorry, now. I don't tell you. I just didn't. Much like every other sport, I just didn't give a fuck. It yeah. just wasn't my thing. I find myself now to the point I'm like, I'd kind of like to go see a Formula One race at some point because I'm actually kind of getting into it. And it's due not only to those movies, but this pretty damn good documentary that despite its reason for existing, having a lot to do with, like I said, promoting, just promoting Formula One in and of itself. It's like EPK, the movie. Yeah. This is a history of Formula One racing going from the early days and not spending but so much time on that to how it evolved with the cars and how the evolution of the cars led to that period in the 60s and 70s, which admittedly is the bulk of what this movie uh, focuses on, where drivers were dying all the time because the cars were changing. Like at one point they said within a year, the average car was twice as fast as it was the previous year, mm-hmm. but the tracks weren't changing. The safety regulations weren't changing. Nothing else was changing except for the, the cars. It's a dangerous formula. Yeah. Which led to, uh, see, I see what you did there, <laughs> <laughs> which led to people getting killed so regularly. At one point they said there was four months where uh, somebody died at every single race. It's like, that's insane. That's when you have to revise a few things. Uh, and this goes all the way to modern day with, like I said, the, the, the majority of it looking at like how things started to go wrong, why they were staying wrong for that while, and why people were even continuing to race at that period. And that was, you know, of course, the period that Formula One went from being a popular sport to an incredibly popular sport, because guess what? People were bloodthirsty. <laughs> I say, I, I admit that's the most interesting period of the sport to me. <laughs> right. I'm like, I'd watch, you know, basketball all the time if they had like scythes that came out of their elbows or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you just want to watch robot jocks again. Come on. Pretty much. 
Um, This is narrated by Michael Fassbender, which means just listening to it can be kind of a pleasure, but it's a collection of new interviews and classic footage of which there's a lot of, apparently. Formula One was very well covered by the media. You wouldn't get Michael Slowbender to narrate a movie about Formula One. That wouldn't make any sense. That would be weird because there is no Michael Slowbender. What? No. Inception. I'm sorry. He goes on and and it's a good hour of this almost two-hour film talking about the 60s and 70s, and that's good. That's what you want to know the most about. But then it also goes into, like, okay, so how did things finally start to change? I'm making this all sound kind of dry, but it, and it is a little bit dry if you don't give a shit at all about Formula One. I would honestly say watch Senna and Rush first. Yeah. Once you get a taste for it, like, wow, that's really exciting. Watch this. And this fills in the gaps of the whole history with lots of really good racing footage, uh, shocking deaths. Man, these guys just used to Burned to death, which is like the worst way to go all the time. These just personalities that are willing to risk that for the thrill. Yeah. It's a solid documentary, but like I said, better suited as sort of an addendum to those other films than something that stands alone as a great movie. Uh, No extras, unfortunately, but, you know, it, it is an extra. So there you go. I think that would be a good episode of our sports show for all of us to go. And I've actually never seen a Formula One race. I've only ever seen IndyCar. Uh, and I, I really, yeah, right. <laughs> I really do want to want to check this out. Of course, the the issue I have with the Austin Formula One track is that we have an idiot for a governor who was like, "Oh yeah, let's uh, let's just take that money out of teacher pensions." And it's like, yeah, I will punch you in the face, Rick Perry. Unbelievable. You heard it here first. I'm surprised the teachers haven't come at him like zombies and just right? ripped him apart. Fucking asshole. Yeah. Anywho, <laughs> got weirdly political as we talked about Formula One. Uh, I don't know how that got there. Let's talk about Jackass Presents Bad Grandpa. Now, let me just, let me preface this by saying there are one or two sketches throughout the entirety of Jackass that I have found legitimately funny and laughed fairly hard at. Overall, I think what keeps me at arm's length from Jackass is twofold. One, the amount of of dick and shit humor. Like, okay, guys, you're, you're all getting into your 40s by the time you made the third movie. Like, enough is enough. And secondly, the stuff I really don't like is, like, the uncomfortable true life stuff. And most of that takes place when they're dressed as grandpas, when they do the bad grandpa shit. So here's a movie about a show that I don't particularly like that much, focusing entirely on the one part of the show I really fucking hate. (laughs) So I did not see this movie because of that. So, Chris, this one is all you, sir. You know, here's the thing where I'm different. When I, I, I've i never really watched the show that much. I'm like, eh, it just, you know, there's little bits and pieces. Like, I think I watched a, be- a best of uh, DVD they put out. It's or probably the best way to do it, yeah. Point where it was like, okay, most of this is pretty funny, but never regularly watched or that or Steve-O's show or any of that. But all three of the movies I had a great time with. And that might be partially because you're watching it with a whole crowd of people that are laughing uproariously at the right points or gagging at the appropriate points. And I, too, don't particularly care for the poop and piss jokes and, and, and hard-on jokes. I'm like, eh. But I do enjoy those sort of like don't see it coming stunts, stupid stunts. Yeah, that's stuff I like. Yeah, yeah, that's the really funny stuff. And I actually do like the stuff that where they do something in costume and people think it's normal and then it's and then it's not. And it's focusing the humor is focusing on the reaction of people being shocked by this. The Borat formula. If yeah. You will. And see, that's and I think that's, again, comedy being the most objective genre. We've said it time and time again. 
I don't find that funny with Borat either. I think that's just a style of comedy that doesn't appeal to me. Well, it did very much appeal to me with Borat. I loved that movie so much. But partially why that worked was because it was actually saying something while it was putting people in those situations about Abs- people. Yeah, that's true. It's about racism and sexism and all sorts of things in order to – like while you're laughing, you're also going, wow – People are fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, absolutely. Just, I agree with that entirely. Jackass bad grandpa can't claim this. There's <laughs> nothing like that going on. This is puerile as you get. Even with the original Jackass movies made me – I'm like, I'm a 16-year-old boy watching these things. There's no excuse or art here. They're just fun if you like that sort of thing. Jackass Presents Bad Grandpa significantly lowers the amount of fun stuff like that in here. There's really only one stunt in the whole movie that they showed in the fucking trailer. You know, all the best parts are in the trailer. Not this. surprising. And it's Johnny Knoxville walking around in a, in a incredibly convincing old man makeup and suit. Like, really real. In fact, it got an Oscar nod for best makeup. Jesus Christ, are you serious? <laughs> yeah, totally serious. How did I miss that best, part? Best makeup and hairstyling. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, I know. But it's him, and they try and write a plot around, you know, the, the stuff they do with, like, oh, it's an old man doing totally dis- distressing stuff and then recording people being shocked by it. He's... Like this plot as such, he's this piece of shit human being, basically, who's really dirty and tries to talk every- Are you talking about the character or- The character. Okay. I have no idea what Johnny Knoxville is like in real life. He might be the nicest guy in the world. I have no idea. I guess that is true. But he- his his wife dies and his his drug addict daughter, played briefly here by Catherine Ke- uh, Keener- uh, Oh, I'm sorry. No, my apology. His drug- uh, Georgia Cates shows up. Catherine Keener actually plays his dead wife, who we oh, only see as dead. Uh, his funeral's daughter shows up as a drug addict with his eight-year-old grandson, Billy. Uh, and she says, like, look, I got to go do this other thing. I'm going to jail, so you got to take uh, the, the kid and bring him to his father, which is – who lives way, way away. His father also kind of a drug addict piece of shit. Grandpa is a bad grandpa and just wants to get rid of the kid, but they go on this road trip reluctantly across the country that's basically just a series of set pieces that are either the kid doing things that shock people or the grandpa doing things that shock people. And there are a couple things in here that are genuinely funny. I mean, there's you've probably seen clips that involve where he puts the the cat is trying to make love to Brian. Yeah, I don't know what's <laughs> happening right now. Cat's uh, all up in my shit. He's shoot. like really all up in your shit. You must have changed deodorants or something. Yeah, know. that must. What, what's up? I'm glad that you noticed I showered. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, yo, he's not used to it. So. <laughs> well played. Uh, well, at least around here, anyway. Uh, uh, so you saw the the fashion uh, show, like kids fashion show, that he enters the kid and dressed up as a girl, who then rips off his his sailor suit and has a stripper outfit on. You know, you're like. That actually is funny to watch happen live because those people are not in on the joke. They don't know what happened. Right. Okay, that is – I laughed, but is it memorable? Does it have any meaning to it? It's it's just so <laughs> – you know, I forgot ba- – I had to think about this to recall what happened in it and I just saw it like three days ago. So That's pretty damning. Yeah, it's – I mean – I am happy that guys like Spike Jones, who directed, of course, Her, which was my favorite movie of the year this year, is incredibly thoughtful, deep film about human relationships, and his off time likes to 
film a bunch of poop jokes. Yeah, it's the <laughs> weirdest it's, thing in the world. To he me. didn't direct this, but he was one of the producers, one of the people who comes and the writers and stuff. When he's been in, like uh, on the show, I know when they do the bad grandpa stuff, occasionally it is Spike Jones in the makeup. Yeah, no, it's just they're friends, and it's one of those things. You're like, okay, this is what you do to unwind. You know, I admit I may be reading Hemingway on the couch during the day, but I often like to go unwind with my friends at night, drink ridiculously too much beer, and fart. Hmm. I'm just realizing whose life you're actually describing here, and I have some personal evaluating to do. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. I, 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 worst thing about all this is that usually the Jackass films come with a fuck ton of extra features. Like, usually there's a whole second movie worth of outtakes. extra footage. Yeah. You know, you're like, wow, that's really, this makes it well worth your time. Not so much here. This is really not a lot of extra stuff. There's uh, very, seven, like, like, just maybe 15 minutes of behind-the-scene looks, which are not that important. Not that big a deal. It's mainly them going, hey, it wasn't real. This is Johnny Knoxville. Uh, alternate takes, which once again, you're like, well, we already saw this. Why Why are we seeing this again? And then just a few deleted scenes that are really just alternate takes as well. And huh. ultimately, yeah, this is the least of the Jackass films for me. I appreciate the fact they were trying to do something a little bit different, but it's only a little bit different for Jackass. The truth is Borat did this first, and it was much better then. Hmm. Well, there you have it. Uh, a movie for, I guess, big fans of uh, Jackass. Who desperately want one last thing from Jackass. Who who just want to make sure that Johnny Knoxville gets his paycheck. Um, so that is Jackass Presents Bad Grandpa. Now we're going to move on to the war between men and women. That never-ending war. Never-ending war. The year was every single year there's ever been in history. The war is the one that will never end. Raging between men, heroes, victims, and women. The evil tyrants that oppress us at every turn. Who will win this battle? When will women learn that all we want to do is touch their boobies? When will they learn? (laughs) When will this madness end? I'm kidding, of course. I don't get upset out there, ladies. The War Between Men and Women is a 1972 Jack Lemmon film. One of my favorite comic actors of all time. Oh, he's magnificent. Oh, he's so amazing. And here he co-stars with Barbara Harris and Jason Robards. Yay. And you know, oh my God, you know who plays like the, the oldest daughter here of the, cause it's, he, he meets this girl's already married, was married and has three kids. The, uh, the oldest daughter here was Lisa Elbacher. And I was like, that sounds familiar. Where do I know that from? She was Jenny in Beverly Hills Cop. Ha! <laughs> You know, right. Eddie Murphy's old female friend. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I was like, oh my God, that's why. And Connect the dots. Yeah, exactly. La, 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 la. Uh, so here, Jack Lemon is basically playing James Thurber, the writer who, of course, originally wrote uh, uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitty, who was an incredibly popular humorist, uh, geez, for decades. It had a, series, a whole bunch of books. And uh, this was directed by Melville Shavelson, who created a Thurber-based television series called My World and Welcome to It. He also wrote this. Uh, and it's, like I said, it's very much just sort of a promotional piece in some ways for Thurber, like the idea that Lemon is playing Thurber, who's this completely as acerbic and cynical as you can get wit, whose books are all women, kids, and dogs should all be just burned in a fire pit. <laughs> They're all awful. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you know, he's Thurber to an exaggerated extent. You know? Gotcha. Uh, but he's very nearsighted to the point of worrying about going blind, but he's happy being a bachelor. Uh, it's unbelievable. Anyone can stand him, but for whatever reason, he, 
forms a relationship with this woman, Barbara Harris, who thinks he's very funny, even though she realizes he's an asshole. Before you know it, they're married. Uh, and he's like, how did I get here? <laughs> what, the, what happened? I hate kids. They have like six dogs. <laughs> like this is, how did I get in this position? And I normally would have expected this to turn into a war of the roses type thing. You know, we're like, okay, now it's just watching it degenerate towards hatred. But oddly, it goes a very different direction once it gets to there when it introduces Jason Robards, who is Barbara Harris's ex-husband, who was a war photographer, kind of a manly man, as opposed to Jack Lemon, who likes to just stay inside and, you know, drink wine with one finger sticking out. Very proper. That's how you do <laughs> very it. Very proper. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Robards, it's clear once he realizes his wife's gay. I mean, shows up during their wedding. And disrupts it just by being there, by all the kids coming to run to see him, you know, right in the middle of the vows. And it's clear there's still some attraction between Barbara Harris and him. And it just throws everything into upheaval as Jack Lemon has to deal with his own feelings about the situation. And there's – and once again, that doesn't go where you'd think it would go. It turns into sort of a weird male bonding thing against what the fuck is all the problems with woman? What's up with that type thing? It's actually very funny <laughs> for most of it. It And it one of the best things about this, there's this tail end sequence where they go inside a James Thurber book, basically, where it's all animated James Thurber cartoons that they're sort of interacting with and moving around with. Like, I didn't even know this movie existed, and I was a big Thurber fan when I was a kid. It's probably, I mean, it, I can see why it's not considered to be an all-time classic or anything. I mean, it was nominated for a Writer's Guild of America Award for Best Comedy Written Directly for the Screen, but it was one of the, you know, lemon ones that did respectable enough in the theater and then slunk off into obscurity. Certainly not one of his best films, but I think if you're a Thurber fan at all, uh, if you are a Lemon fan, this is one of those ones you do want to have in your collection. It's a solid role with really funny writing and performances from everyone involved and some pretty original stuff you wouldn't expect to see in a film of this type. So, yeah, actually give this direct-to-DVD – not direct-to-DVD, this DVD re-release. It's once again the studio just kind of sliding out all the stuff that they hadn't actually released yet on DVD. Uh, I, I give it a thumbs up. It's well worth checking out. A lot of fun. I will watch anything with Jack Lemon. Fact. Yeah. Anything? Anything. Wait, let's look it up. Yeah, I was like, find something with Jack Lemon <laughs> I won't watch. I defy you to find something with Jack <laughs> Lemon I will not watch. Something with Jack Lemon. You gotta look late. Okay. Let's yeah, see. I was like, go go as late as you want. The Legend of Bagger Vance. I will watch it now that I know that Jack Lemon is in it. The Odd Couple 2. I will watch that. No, you won't. I will. I will I'll even watch Out to Sea. Really? Yes, I will. Out to Sea? Yep. Yep, I will watch that no, because don't. it is uh, well, now you have to Mathow and Lemon reunited. So, yep, I'll watch that. Is there anything that honestly, like, given this moment that you would say, no, 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 I would not watch it. Like, if it was some other. No, no, no. If, if, if it's like movie 44 or something. Well, like that. that's the thing is <laughs> if I'm if I'm going to make the claim that there is anything with Jack Lemon in it, I will watch. I have to stick to those guns. Yeah. OK, fair enough. And I, I will totally I do couldn't it. win on that one. Is what you're saying. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so let's talk about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, because you know, Chris, in each of us, two natures are at war, the not, good and the evil. Not me. They got together and formed a small business. The Geevil. <laughs> it's called oneofus.net. <laughs> <laughs> not sure which side you are, Brian. Oh, it's but cute that you think I still have a good side. Now, may, maybe not the, not the right time to tell you you don't exist. You're just another side of my personality. Yeah, that's that's about right. Is that that's, okay? That's what I expected. Okay, fair enough. Mm -hmm. uh, this is actually considered to be 
arguably the greatest adaptation of the classic uh, Robert Louis Stevenson a novel, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, ever made. And it's a 1920 silent film version of it starring John Barrymore. Now, there have been a lot of adaptations of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, not all of which are called Dr. and Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Some of them are called Dr. Jekyll and, and Miss Hyde or Dr. Sister Demento. Hyde. Dr. Demento. <laughs> Just saying, there's a lot. There's one where he turns into a black guy. I can't yeah. remember what that one was. Uh, the, you know, there's a lot of different versions of this, a lot of different, just honest, you know, straight versions. This was considered the best for one very good reason, John Barrymore, who was considered to be the, one of the very greatest actors of his time. And he was doing a good deal of the Hodge stuff purely through acting. Now, they certainly did give him another set of, a set of bad teeth and they had extensions on his fingers with like long, ragged, like fingernails. At one point, scene, there's a scene you can see him thrashing about and you actually can see one of the finger extensions fly off his hand. Oh shit. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. But, second yeah, takes whoops. are for losers. In the old days, there was no such thing as a second take. You I guess got that's it right true. the first time. But, of course, I don't think I really need to tell you the basics of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. If I do, you need to get a better education. Read any Hulk comic. That's what it's about. <laughs> uh, but this adds to it the idea that he had a love interest, which was kind of a mistake because she's – when she's on screen, is just kind of awkward. And you're like, wow, she has nothing to do with this plot. There's no real reason for her to be here at all. But once again, who cares? This is actually filmed very well for asylum films, very moody and atmospheric. Uh, it's – John Barrymore is – even today, even all this time watching a silent film, genuinely frightening as Mr. Hyde. He is so – he just bends and twists every aspect of himself into this role so well. You're like, I can't believe this is the guy that ever played a romantic love interest for anyone <laughs> afterwards, yeah. you know. Uh, it's a real classic and I'm glad that it actually is getting a, a formal Blu-ray release from Kino. Now – now, to be fair, there is a public domain version of this that exists that you can see for free out there. This is slightly fixed up over. It's certainly not enough so that you'd say that for that alone, it's worth getting this version, except that this has added a really pretty exceptional score, uh, done, done very, very well by the Mont Alto Motion Picture Orchestra, uh, who worked with Kino on a lot of their silent film releases. A terrific one, as well as a really solid passel of extras. There is a 1912 version, about 14 minutes long. It's an early single reel adaptation of the story. Uh, there's a the rival 1920 version. Version that was a ripoff directed by Louis B. Mayer that was meant to capitalize on the success of this version. Uh, there is a Stan Laurel two-reeler from 1925 that makes fun of the movie called Dr. Pickle and Mr. Pride. That's it's weird. This is the earliest satire film I've ever seen. Like, I didn't mm -hmm. even know they were making direct satires, but this is like, this is where Airplane came from. <laughs> you know, right. it's like, wow, that's crazy. And then there is a rare Columbia record audio of artist Len Spencer act out the final scene of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the transformation scene that's actually pretty fucking fascinating to, to hear it represented in that way. Right. This is a solid little thing for a silent film collection. Now, I would have liked to have seen a documentary about the history of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde adaptations, but ultimately – that, you know, you're still getting more than your money's worth for this little set. And it is one of the most watchable of the dramatic silent films I've ever seen. That's awesome. And, you know, it's, it's funny that special feature about the 1912 version. Few people realize that one of the first films, not even films, one of the first things ever captured on film in any kind of storytelling fashion was an early adaptation of Frankenstein. Yep. Horror movies and the dawn of cinema itself go hand in hand. Oh, yeah. 
I, and I of love course, that porn, but and, and we of don't course, talk porn. about that stuff as much. Right. Well, <laughs> it, it's it's harder to admit that you're a diehard fan of porn, even if you are. <laughs> no Chris. one will, no one admits that. No. But let's face the tr- let's face facts. You have an archive of that probably bigger than your music archive on your computer. You do not want to look at that archive, either one. Uh, so yeah, and if you're interested. The exploitation version is Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde starring Bernie Casey. <laughs> oh, there you go. So that's pretty awesome, actually. I can't wait to see that I don't one. No, is it? I like Bernie Casey a lot, so I will I will watch that. Anywho, that is going to bring us to the Coexist Comedy Tour. Yes, because that's what makes comedy funny, us all getting along. Everybody getting along and, and, and sharing and helping, that's... L- Wait a minute, what? Yeah, uh, you know, this is actually brought to you by a strange person. This is directed by Larry Brand. Does that ring a bell for you? Uh, for the Full Moon guy, Larry Brand? Uh, the, Larry and Charles? Uh, oh, no, 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 that's Band, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's Band. He is the guy who, uh, well, he's directed a few films, but he wrote Halloween Resurrection, uh, Mask of the Red Death, the recent version. He's Oof. not really – like a lot of really crappy horror and action films. And sure enough, if there's a problem with this Coexist Comedy Tour, it's that it's conceived a little awkwardly. They try and create – well, the idea being – is that they want to have like a comedian from every major religion get on stage and kind of lightly make fun of each other and themselves. Uh, and the idea, Hey, we can all get along because we can all laugh. Okay. I can see that being funny. Maybe not worth making a movie about, but like maybe a funny tour if you got the right people for. And apparently at the last minute, and this is the wraparound story they decided to give this thing sort of a plot was that the guy who was the Christian who they never say who he was dropped out after they had already filmed him. Which they were like, shit, we forgot to get him on contract, which goes to show how professional this operation Yeah, was. good job, guys. Yeah. Uh, I, and also, wow, what a dick. Yeah, seriously. It's like, oh, well, I think I might have a chance at a TV series, so I don't want to be on a, uh indie thing where I'm making fun, even however lightly, of Christianity. It's like, Was it going to be on Kirk Cameron's new show? Like, uh, what the fuck does it matter? I, I know, right? Uh, so that's like, you know, this as such as it is, the running plot, and it's not very interesting – as a plot, although there is something to be said that they keep showing their their uh, sessions of you know asking people to come in and just do improv who want that that spot who are really bad, <laughs> like most of them were like, wow, don't ever try comedy again. But yeah, I, that seems this seems like such a bad idea of something to like put out. Well, the actual problem here is just that like. It's difficult to do something like this. How do you do it? You've got people from all these different religions out there. They're all supposed to – you don't want to say anything out and out mean, you know, uh, but yeah. you don't want to be too nice either, either against them. or you, I mean, it's like comedy when having to live on a razor's edge of like what – I don't know. What's going to be okay to say is just generally not that funny. And you'll never have heard of any of the people who are in this, so sure enough. Like, I'm sure they tried to connect with bigger comedians who were like, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's when comedy is the funniest with limitations. <laughs> right? Uh, now, this is going to sound awful, but the only guy of all these that I genuinely thought was really talented and worth checking out was the Jewish guy. <laughs> I swear that is not a joke. He is by far the funniest guy out of all of these. <laughs> and he even at, at points, and he's trying to be like, you know, 
it, it playing the humor about being, well, of course, I'm the funniest person you can see here tonight because I'm Jewish. Mel Brooks yeah. comes out, I told you so, and then yeah. he runs away. I'm like going, ah, it's hard to, I, you know what? I'm not allowed to say anything, so I'm just not going to, except <laughs> you might have a point there. Uh, Mo, Mo, uh, Moshe, Moshe Kasher uh, is his name. Moshe? Yeah, really funny guy. Uh, I will definitely be looking for more of his stuff, but it's partially because he's very, he's the guy who's not afraid to be, to go dig a little deeper, to be a little harder, to be a little nastier, whereas everyone else is playing it a little too lightly. And it's, and there's, there's, it's like nobody here is terrible at all. Like probably the worst is, uh, Tisa Hami, who's a Muslim comic who seems so likable. But then she just doesn't have any good material. She actually goes up on ends her thing with a parody of Adam Sandler's The Hanukkah Song, but about Ramadan. Oh, and you're like God. going, yeah, but you're we're just laughing at Adam Sandler's joke here, really. You just changed the words a little bit. That's yeah, that's not like really... that's like YouTube shit. Yeah, exactly. I was like, that's not that's not really funny. Uh, now the guy they eventually get that you know because it says his name on the box is John uh, Fugelsang, that apparently has a career from America's Funniest Home Videos and VH1, yeah. uh, Tick the Christian Spot, and he's not bad. He actually has a, a pretty damn funny routine in the midst of some of his less funny stuff here, but ultimately. You know, there's a lot of stand-up comedy stuff out there, and I'm always going to say these con- these collections of stuff like this are rarely very funny. The blank, blank, blank comedy tour, yeah. probably not going to be funny. And this is not really an exception either. I, was, I had high hopes for this, and if you're one of those people who's just hoping that this is going to be the one, yeah, there's some funny stuff mixed in with this, no question, but ultimately, you can do better. Yeah. So let's move away from the realm of things that aren't very good into the realm of things that are just plain awful and should never have been created. Oh, wait, I know what we're talking about. Argento's Dracula in 3D. Yeah. What the fuck? I... Ugh. Like, as soon as I got done turning off this movie ten minutes before it actually ended because I couldn't fucking take it anymore, I had to immediately put in Suspiria to calm myself down and remind myself that there was once a point where Dario Argento made incredible movies. Yeah, tell me he was in the same car with Gary Busey when they got into an accident, you know, because what the fuck Or is smoking the same incredibly strong strain of ganja that John Carpenter got a hold of. Something, because this is... All right, I'll tell you what. At first, I was thinking that maybe he was making a satire of, like... Like films, Italian horror films made in like the 60s, like bad Italian horror, because at first that's what it seemed like. The dialogue, I was not sure, was not dubbed at first until I realized, wait, this isn't dubbed. They're just as bad as the people who did dub dialogue for yeah. American releases of Italian horror films in the 60s and 70s. It's that terrible. Well, at, for, at first I was like, maybe he's saying something about Hammer because, you know, there was, like, a lot of really stilted performances, but there were a lot of tits. I was like, okay, maybe maybe he's going for, like, a hammer vibe. He's going for that, like, Jess Franco Euro sleeve. Maybe. Period. And there's points that it's like, okay, I guess that what he was trying to do was reference all that stuff. But it's also half-assed. I like how we're searching in vain for the benefit of the doubt here. But it's it, because it's so unbelievably terrible. The only good thing about this film is the nudity, which is, <laughs> which is good. Quite good. No, it's very good. Yeah, the first girl, I don't know the name of the first actress who gets naked, like, suddenly, like, holy shit, she's, like, naked and getting fucked really hard on screen for an extended period of time. And less than three minutes into the movie. Really hot. And you're like, okay, I know this may not be so bad, despite what it looks like, but no, it is. It's not that good. Good Why are you making me be a perv, Dario Argento? I'm sorry, it's just... I'm not Dario Argento, so I don't know why I'm apologizing. <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, you get, of course you get Asia Argento also getting naked. I never 
understood Daryl, that. Daryl, stop filming your daughter naked. That's it so bizarre. It makes us all very uncomfortable. Yes, she's hot, but let someone else do it. But you, you know you're her dad, right? Yeah, it's creepy. It's just creepy. Ooh. Yeah. And this is just, I mean, it's uh, you know what? Even more so in the fact that the effects are all universally horrible here. Yeah. That the acting is the lowest quality I've seen in maybe years. I mean, wow, is it bad. And it's about 20 minutes before the end. Before Rutger Hauer even shows up, and the guy who's all over the box is the big, the big touted thing for the release. And trust me, that does nothing to improve it. It doesn't. It, <laughs> it just doesn't. makes it worse. It's so and awful. It does, it's like okay, arguably this is Bram Stoker's Dracula, but then it does stuff like uh, Jonathan Harker just pretty much gets turned into a vampire early on, and we barely see him again until a point at the very end where he gets staked and gets to do nothing but go. Ah! Steak. You're like, wait, so Jonathan Harker's not even part of, there's no vampire hunting? Why? I don't mind you playing with the classics a bit, but if you're going to do it, do it because it makes them more interesting. This has none of that. It just wants to give the Count his own little brothel of, of, of vampire chicks to hang out with, and none of that's that interesting. The only thing I think that's even slightly worthy of making this, you know, worth a look is that they do the weirdest vampiric power you have ever seen in one of these movies ever is that apparently in this version he can turn into a giant praying man that was the dopiest fucking thing that was yeah. the point when i turned it off i was like fuck this movie like, are, are you kidding you, me wait, giant praying man because you know when what? you do that shit is when you might have the competent effects people to pull off a decent effect but no they give us cg that if you were if you were seeing this kind of cg in a video game you would throw your controller at the screen and be like why did i pay 60 bucks for this nonsense no question this movie bites it sucks it bites it's... and sucks <laughs> it is an undercooked steak yeah it... too much vamping yeah it, yeah drove me batshit insane it's you could go on with puns that would all be absolutely accurate i could keep coughing up puns all day yeah you got to put a stake in this one you know it's yeah just yeah oh my god it's 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 so bad i want to recommend it almost <laughs> but you can't quite because it's just it's just not funny enough to recommend that it's, was that was awesome. Like, if you listen to this review, it was like, fuck this movie, fuck this movie. I kind of want to recommend it. You know what I mean? Like, usually when a film is this bad, you're yeah. like, you got to see it to on believe a, it. On a spectacle level. But the problem but I have, and not. it's the problem that I have with all movies that are sort of appreciated ironically is like, I don't appreciate anything about this because it's all lazy. There's no, there's no, uh, you know, artistry. There's no even attempt to create something interesting. It's just slap it together and sell it. Yeah, it's incredibly lazy. I mean, the stuff, stuff you see from like, uh, uh, uh Asylum that are those parodies of yes. theatrical films have more care put into them than this. Yeah. That's, although this has more nudity, so it still gets the plot. And I think I only saw one shot that looked like it was going for the 3D effect. Did you notice a lot yeah, of- Yeah, I didn't really see, and even then, it was like, there'd be stuff that was like, okay, this looks like they intended it to be 3D, but they shot it too far away for it to have a 3D effect. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just- incompetency across the board. I don't know what's going on. How old is he? Maybe he's just getting senile and they're like, fuck it, put him in, just put him near the camera. Send him to the old director's home. He's 73 years old. I hate to disrespect the guy, but he's been a long time since he made a movie that was even worth watching at all. And this is the worst thing I've ever seen from him. And I don't know if they were overcompensating for the fact that most 3D movies are too dark, but I'd really like to know why this movie looks like it was lit by a Home Depot. Yeah. It's just like these bright fluorescent lights. It's like, I'm sorry, you're supposed to be in like, uh, you know, an old, uh, you know, like 17th century or even 18th century tavern. 
and it looks like you have fluorescent lights above you. It doesn't make any fucking sense. That's the biggest problem, really, is the lighting in this movie. Oh, wait, no, it's not. One critic was saying uh, that there should be a I was there badge of honor to go alongside having been there at Cannes screenings of, uh, of this, this The Brave, Cannes. and Southland Tales. This went to Cannes. I know, right? If you feel like you're thinking you put a lot of work and love into your movie and you don't understand why it didn't get picked up at a festival, but this did, you're right. You should storm the gates with torches and pitchforks. Because I agree. It's wrong. This I, is just wrong. I totally agree. Yep. <sighs> let's let's just let's let's move on from that. It's it's making me uncomfortable. Yeah. How angry I am. So why don't we uh, move on to you got dark touch. You got dark power. No dark touch. Dark touch. Yeah. Dark touch. That's dark bad. Touch. Dark touching. Bad dark and, touch. And it is. <laughs> oh well, I guess we're not moving too far away from the quality Man, meter. We're just not having the best day. No. Here. Uh, this is actually from IFC's horror collection, which is generally, at the very least, like, huh. Yeah. You watch those movies and go, I don't know if I'd ever see that again, but, huh. But there might be a kernel of an idea there that's, you, you know, know like worth... Going, These are people that you can see that they have something going on. And Dark Touch is not an exception to that either. There's certainly a higher quality of filmmaking in terms of tech technical stuff going on here. The acting is all quite good. Uh, the story is even as it was not original, but like has you wrapped up in it enough. You're like, wow, where is this going? Fortunately, it just doesn't go anywhere that interesting. The idea here in Ireland, 11 year old, uh, what's her name? Niam, Niam, something like that played by Missy Keating, who apparently has been, I guess she's, she's one of those young actresses who's being sought out for stuff that's coming up now. But, uh, she is, she's Carrie basically just a little younger. You know, okay. Uh, she has incredible telekinetic powers. Although at first you're not sure, is this a poltergeist thing? Is she a telekinetic? She's a telekinetic. And we watch her. We're relatively sure that she's being sexually and physically abused by her parents. Uh, and every night as after being abused, things in the house starting to go a little crazy till one night when the house goes so crazy, it sets itself on, it sets on fire and pieces of it come out and tear the parents to shreds rather bloodily. And she doesn't, you know, she's angry, but she doesn't know what's going on. She gets out of the house uh, and is the sole survivor. She ends up going on after is being taken care of by, uh, you know, a, a nice couple that want to just help her. Mm -hmm. And she is so resistant. She won't let anybody touch her or get close to her for reasons that are obvious to us. Right. She's been sexually abused. At one point, uh, she's screaming and the woman who just can't take it anymore slaps her. And her response is to lean over the bed, start pulling up her dress. And she's like, wait, what are you doing? And that's where the film starts to go wrong when it gets a little that heavy handed. You're like, dark touch, you're dark like, touch. You're like, really? <laughs> like, yeah. I just, I don't know here. I, it's, there's a little bit too much of the heebie-jeebies to that sort of thing that aren't the right sort of, it's not like the being scared heebie-jeebies. It's like, you're being a little too creepy with this subject in a way that seems almost inappropriate uh, for dealing with this young actress like this. Mm -hmm. As well, it just gets into totally silly territory when she, uh, for not a natural transition point in the film, but basically realizes, no, I can control all this telekinetic stuff and decides to basically uh, village of the damned the entire village. Uh oh, of I, the damned. Yeah. It just doesn't really work. It's never, it's too obvious by that point. It's not very scary. It's drawing heavily from other sources that we've seen before. 
I don't know. It just at the end, it was just kind of laughably silly. I wish I could have liked this more because it had a strong start and good performances, as I said. But ultimately, this is one of the weaker of the IFC horrors I've seen anytime recently. So skip it. Okay, I have two more, two more puns against Dario Argento's Dracula oh, 3D. Jesus Christ. Why is Argento incapable of making good movies anymore? Uh, and why are the actors intractable in their decision to be terrible? Uh, Sorry. I couldn't, I couldn't help it. That, that's how bad that movie is. That movie doesn't have any teeth, that's for sure. Ha <laughs> ha! Three. <laughs> well, why don't we move on to the last title of the show, which is also not great. I am so sorry, guys. I was being too sanguine about that. Oh, shit. That was bloody brilliant. I, um, I don't even know if that was if that actually works. Or not. <laughs> what's the last? What's going on? What's the last title here? The last title is Last Vegas. Okay, what is that, Brian oh, Salisbury? Did you not see this? I did not see this. I did actually ask oh. them to send it to me, and they did not. So okay, I didn't so, see it in the theater. I think I was doing something better. Well, they they okay. This is yeah. This is the movie that they they sent me on DVD because I think they were like, why even bother sending the Blu-ray out to press? Nobody's gonna like it. Las Vegas is the hangover for geriatrics. Oh, what fun. Yeah. It's it's about a guy, it's played by Michael Douglas, who's getting married to a woman half his age. Well, so at least it's realistic then. <laughs> yeah, it's autobiographical. Um so he <laughs> gets throat cancer. Anyway, um no, he goes he rounds up this group of friends that he had when he was a kid and they were sort of like uh, in Brooklyn, they were they called themselves the the Lords of Flatbush, and they were you know or not the Lords of Flash, but the Kings that's of something different. Yeah, the Lord something of Flash, but the Flatbush the Flatbush Four. That's what they called themselves. So it's uh, the grown up versions are Michael Douglas, Robert De Niro, Morgan Freeman, and Kevin Klein, and they decide that they're going to go have a big bachelor party weekend in Vegas, and they all have kind of these uh, these these storylines going into the trip. Like Kevin Klein's wife is like, hey. Haven't really been having a robust love life, so why don't you go and get yourself some strange while you're in Vegas, and oh. then that'll jumpstart things when you get home. Man, I, wish, I bet we all wish we heard that at least once. <laughs> it's yeah, it's just awkward to anyway. Um, so <laughs> not that it would do us any good. Well, We'd be yeah. like, I couldn't get any. <laughs> that, yeah, right. Uh, so and then Morgan Freeman has this like unresolved thing with his son. Like his son thinks he has to be watched all the time. And clearly he does because he does shit like this. Uh, he makes movies like this when no one's watching. And then Robert De Niro has this unresolved sort of conflict with Michael Douglas about uh, Robert De Niro's recently deceased wife. And so they bring all this baggage with them to Vegas that doesn't include, you know, their various pillboxes and whatnot. Sure. And so it just becomes – it literally the joke throughout the whole movie is like – they're too old to be doing that. That's not funny. No, it really isn't. And, and I will say it's even kind of worse with all this talent in a movie. Like we've like getting used to seeing Rob De Niro in movies that you're like, why are you having to take this? It's so sad. But the fact you get all these guys having to take one of these movies together is just a face palm. Of a and they're, you know what? To, for the in their defense, they are trying. They are trying to take this worthless garbage material and mine anything fun out of it. And there are a couple of line reads that are legitimately funny. But if it were any other four actors trying to, like, pull off this dialogue, it would be absolutely flat, as most of the movie is. But that one of my favorite lines is there's a point where, uh, you know, they're trying to get into VIP, and the guy's like, the bottle service is 18 So it's like, oh, here's $18. $1,800? You know, it's a stupid setup. Wah, wah. It's a stupid old joke. But Kevin Klein's reaction is just there's a moment of silence, and then he just goes... Fuck! And it's just like, okay, that was kind of and funny. And whenever Kevin Klein screams something, it's all yeah, and he's like screaming that. expletives, and they haven't really been cursing throughout the whole movie, and that was that was funny to me. So they're like little tiny moments like that, and then you get to the third act, and oh. the third act, 
where they try and resolve all of these like narrative threads is where the movie goes from not very good to just plain awful. Like there is shit that happens. It's like, do you really expect me to believe that this is how this story wraps up? Or do you really expect me to believe that this is the reaction this character has to this? It is, it is the worst kind of shoehorning for emotional effect. Like nothing is really organic about the way all of these loose ends are tied down. And they just happen that way because they realize the movie's been on for too long and people are getting bored. And your target audience is probably already asleep because it's 70 to 80 year olds. Um, <laughs> but there's just, there's, I can't recommend this movie at all to any age group because I feel like even if you're, you know, our age and you watch this and you're like, this could be funny if the joke wasn't always look how old these guys are. Yeah. And if you're, uh, you know, if you're these guys' age and you're watching this movie, you're probably, hopefully, still have the mental acumen to be like, this isn't very well written. And that's one of the things is this is being brought to you by John Turtle Tob. I think that's how you say his name. Oh, he really Tom. doesn't have anything go- really good on his uh, credit. Uh, you know, I think the thing I like best that he did was uh, Cool Runnings, which you know is one of those you're like, okay, it's cute, and I know a lot of people remember it more for, fondly when because they saw it when they were young. But it's not a great movie. Some people say, you know, they can't believe that Chris does not like Cool Runnings. <laughs> Shush. He doesn't like the Jamaica has a But, you know, he did, like, uh, Disney's The Kid, the National Treasure movies, uh, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, Three Ninjas. Just, like, the phenomenon. This is not a guy whose career has been full of, like, films that are unquestionably great. No. No, I actually was laboring under the delusion for a second that he also directed The Sandlot, and I was going to defend him, and then I realized that wasn't him. That was not him. No. It's it's funny. Like, Three Ninjas is even a movie I watched a lot as a kid. And now I realize that not that. No, it sucks ass. Yeah. And I'm not going to defend John Turtletop because of it. I did like Cool Runnings. I still like Cool Runnings to this day. Uh, there's a great story about while you were sleeping that uh, it's Luke's mom's favorite movie. Huh. And when Luke met Bill Pullman at a Fantastic Fest, the only thing he could think to say to him as he shook his hand was... While You Were Sleeping is my mom's favorite movie. But luckily, Bill Pullman was so coked out of his mind, he was like, hey, that's cool! I'd be like, <laughs> you know what I would say to him? I'd say, when are you going to make a secret to zero, sequel to Zero Charisma? That's what I would say. You ever zero Theory. Zero, no, Zero Theory, is that it? Yeah, Zero Charisma is the one oh, yeah. with Sam Eidson. Right, you're right, right. No, Zero Theory, yeah. I have not yeah. seen Zero Theory. Which is uh, where he is like this offbeat private detective type, and it's so great. It's so much fun. Well, I will have to check that out. Zero Theorem. Zero I thought that was the, wait a minute, isn't that the Terry Gilliam movie? No, I don't know. We don't know. What's happening? We're tumbling down a movie title rabbit hole. I was looking at it earlier and I was like, Zero effect. Zero effect. Yeah, zero effect. Zero something. I'm scoring a zero as far as brain cell activity. We have zero idea what this movie was actually called. Oh my God. 50 Cent was in this movie as well. I'm talking about That is one of the points. That's one of the parts of the movie that makes no fucking sense. Not that he's there, but the way they react to him when he shows up makes no fucking sense. That guy... I'm sorry. He is spending every penny he has on getting himself into, or at least every quarter, both of them, any movie he can because he cannot act. But you know what? They keep putting him in movies with Robert De Niro too. Have you noticed? He's always in Robert De Niro movies. It's yeah, it's it's weird. And yeah, I will say for like the one line he actually has, he the problem with the line is not the way he delivers it. The problem is how it's received by the by the character he says it to. It's just like. That's bullshit. Like, that entire exchange was bullshit. So, uh, I'm sorry. You, like, the worst part of your 50 cent scene is not 50 cent. That's how bad a director John Turtletop is. Wow, that's pretty bad. Yeah. And you've got all this talent. How did you fuck it up this bad? I, I didn't see it. I'm going by what you said, but still. Yeah. Sounds pretty convincing to me. 
It's it's not good. Uh, well, you know what? We're not we're not giving away a copy of this, are no, we? No, fuck no. Okay, In fact, good because I wouldn't want to curse people with that. I am really happy with what we have. This is probably one of the best giveaways we've ever had. Giveaway! Giveaway! And I'm really happy that it comes this week and wash the taste out of a lot of these fucking awful titles out of people's mouths. Indeed. So last week you may remember that we talked about a documentary called Never Sleep Again, which is this. Really impressive and uh, fascinating overarching story of the entire Nightmare on Elm Street franchise up until uh, Freddy vs. Jason. Surprisingly good. Yeah, very engaging, very in-depth. Uh, you, you, I mean, even if you don't like that franchise, you will find a lot about this documentary to like and latch onto. And we contacted uh, the company that released it, and we let them know, you know, like, hey, we... We really like this. Thanks for, you know, sending review copies. And also, you know, we made it pick of the week. We'd really like to have something to give away uh, that's, uh, you know, Never Sleep Again related. We thought at best we'd get a Blu-ray. Oh, they gave us a Blu-ray. They gave us an autographed Blu-ray. It's not only autographed by the writers and director of the documentary, but by Heather Loggenkamp from the very first Nightmare on Elm Street. Nancy! Nancy herself has autographed this Blu-ray. That's, who was the producer of this. Yeah, so. she produced the, the documentary. So, yeah, you not only get the Blu-ray, you not only get this great documentary, you get an autographed copy. That, tremendously rare. Something that's you're, amazing. You're not going to be able to go to Best Buy and pick up this particular copy. Aren't you glad you listened to Digital Noise now? Aren't you glad you listened? We told you there would be a benefit to it. A it may have taken us a while. But you may have listened to hundreds of hours of shit you could have done without, but <laughs> now you can win this. Now you will reap the rewards. So as you know, the way we do our giveaways is we kind of give you a creative writing prompt. And this week, what I want you to do is, first of all, make sure you're following uh, one of us, one of us net at one of us net on Twitter because this is all Twitter based. So follow at one of us net. And then what I want you to do is tell us what is one subject in horror that you really want to make a documentary about. And what would that documentary be called? I'm looking for either a complete joke or be completely serious. I don't care. Either one. We will pick our favorite one, and that person will win. And make sure you hashtag that Never Sleep Giveaway. So follow at one of us, Net. Tell us what you would make a horror documentary about. Tell us the title. Hashtag Never Sleep Giveaway. We'll pick our favorite. That person will win not only a Blu-ray of Never Sleep Again, but an autographed copy, autographed by the writers, the director, and Heather Loggenkamp, who is, you know, a scream queen in her own right. Yeah, so. she's one of the biggest, one of the best. So there Only you have been it. been in one series, really, and that still makes her top of the list. There you have it. Yeah. And we're giving that away just because we're that nice. We are. We know, wanted to keep the fucking I was thing. like going, wait, Brian, they sent what? I was like, why don't we send the copy that I have already that isn't signed, and I keep that one. <laughs> See, and we'd be like, well, we'll pretend we'll sign it as her, but then we'd fuck up and write, like, I don't know, uh, Robert England. It'd be like, oh, shit, that's not how you spell Heather Loggenkamp. But then it's worth even more. Oh, yeah. Then or- then the lie is worth more. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, that's uh, that's a giveaway. That's our episode, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I want to remind you, once again, you can find us on iTunes. Just search one of us in the podcast section. You become a subscriber. That would be awesome uh, to help us keep the lights on. You can follow us on Twitter. The show is at DigiNoiseCast. Individually, we are at Salisbury And at Chris Cox Critic. Yes, I know it's a little I know. Funny. I'm just letting them, you know, sink that in so that uh, they now, don't trip over it. Please click on our Amazon links and buy uh, the titles that probably not from this week's show, but, you know, from previous <laughs> week's show that you you liked, uh, you know, and if you do that, we get a kickback as well. You buy anything starting from that links, we get a kickback and add to that, please, if you heard something through uh, uh, th- that you ended up getting through us on there. Uh, that you fell in love with, you're like, wow, I never would have heard of this if it wasn't for these guys. Please go back to that Amazon page and leave a review that specifically mentions 
uh, oneofus.net and Digital Noise and say, this is where I found out about this great title as well as many others. And, that, you know, not to toot our own horn, but we get messages like that all the time from people like, hey, thanks for recommending this movie I didn't know about. It. I really love it. Do it on Amazon. Do it on Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> please, please because do that. that way you get more and more people going, really? What's the site who want to know about movies who are scanning? You know, you're not even reading the reviews unless you're on there, unless you're trying to find out whether or not something's actually good or not. Hey. There you go. Now you got a place you can, they'll be like, there's a place I can go for that. There's one source for that. You're right. We are the wellspring. From the very beginning, guys, we've told you this is not a site about, you know, me and Chris. This is a site about all of us and all anything, all of us dot one of us dot net. Anything that benefits the site is a benefit to all of us and it helps us keep delivering, you know, content to you guys and, um, you know, we're, we're certainly not in this for the money as of yet. <laughs> not yet. It'd be, nice if, it'd be nice if someday I could say I was in this for the money, but obviously that's not an option right now. But, you know, as innumerable theatrical versions of the devil have said, join us. Please do. Please become a, a part of Us Nation. You can do that through joining the forums. You can do that through following us on Twitter and Facebook. I mean, just, you know, get out there and spread the word. That's what we're, we're really all about. And until next time, we want to remind you, as we always do, that, uh, what is it that I always say? Oh, yeah, that's right. So no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. 